We're here. Uh, We're here before the Lord, and we're here to hear his word together. So we're in Luke. Uh, We're not going to open, we're going to start in Luke. We're going to start in a couple of uh, books that were written by a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, who Luke traveled with and probably learned a lot of his doctrine, probably polished a lot of his understanding of, of who Jesus is, who Jesus uh, was and the meaning of, of his ministry. And so I want to start in Colossians chapter 1. This is the backdrop for tonight. Okay, We're talking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry as we read it in the, in the Gospel of Luke. Beginning of Jesus' ministry. So I want to start in Colossians chapter 1. Now, this Jesus that we've been reading about, uh, raised by Joseph and Mary, going around Galilee, healing people, uh, dealing with the religious leadership, this is the same Jesus that's talked about in these scriptures that we're going to read. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross i go a few pages back to philippians 2 Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the subject of the Gospel of Luke, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being found in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We just sang about this tonight. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, come and open your word to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that Jesus would be manifest here in a real way. By your presence, Lord, take the Blinders off of our hearts, Lord, open up our ears to hear what you would say to the church tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and go back to Luke. Just a brief recap of last week. This book was written for you, Theophilus, beloved of God. 
If you are loved by God, this book was written for you. And why was it written to you? So that you may have certainty of the things that you've been taught. You know a lot of stuff. You know who Jesus is. You know what he did and said. Now we want to have certainty. We want it to be secure. We want to know it fully. Okay? So in this season, we are going through the Gospel of Luke not to learn something new about Jesus, although if there's something new about Jesus, I hope you're learning that, (laughs) that you've never learned before, but more so to let those basics of the faith be deepened in us. Okay? One of them is the, the theme of salvation, which is, I think, the great theme of, of the Gospel of Luke. Salvation requires a Savior. Salvation means that there is something to be saved from. And so Luke is filling out who is the Savior, how is he doing the saving, what are we being saved from. He's filling out all these things for us. The Savior is a man named Jesus. <laughs> who is God in the flesh. We read in Colossians 1, He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him. Philippians 2, we see that He left His throne to become subject to the weakness and the frailty of creation. Creation itself, unfallen creation, you know, if, if, if God came into the, the world, the perfect and spotless world, it would be a step down, just because it's creation. If he became a man before sin, that would have been a, a great act of humility. So not only is he stepping into the world of the created people that he created, he's becoming a creature, but he's stepping into a world that those creatures have destroyed through sin. This is how our Savior comes to us. This is why we need salvation. And this is the way that God goes about saving mankind. And we'll see that as we go along. But can we just take a moment and recognize that the one who brought the earth into existence willfully came into creation and subjected himself to the humility, the brokenness that is our world. And took upon himself all of our sin, the acts of our will. He took those upon himself in order to save us. This is Jesus. This is the one that we're reading about. Amen? All right. So the first three chapters of Luke are basically unique to Luke. We've been talking about those for for a couple weeks. Um, Obviously, the theme of salvation comes through very strongly in, in those opening chapters. Chapter 4 begins with uh, the temptation of Jesus. Let's go to chapter 4. I'm going to mention two things in chapters 1 through 3 that we didn't really mention uh, in any depth. And I I just want to mention them. One is this story that's unique to Luke of of Jesus as a 12-year-old in the temple. 
Jesus as a 12-year-old in, in the temple. This is the only really portrait we get of the childhood of Jesus. There's a lot of um, stories and legends that floated around in, in some gospels that have been deemed heretical. Uh, but this is the only canonical story that we have of, of young Jesus. And the point of it, you know, to make, we, we could talk a lot about the, the symbolism, but I want to pull out two things that are, that are pertinent to our conversation today. One is that in, in verse 48 of chapter 2, it says, When his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you. And he said, Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Whose son is Jesus? Son, we're looking for you. We were looking for you. And he says, Your father and I are looking for you. He says, I'm in my father's house. Now Mary had been... I mean, she understands, She knows who Jesus' real father is. If anyone knows, Mary knows. Joseph is serving as sort of an adopted father, a servant of God in that way. But here, this idea of Jesus is the son of God. That's what the story really points us to. Here at 12 years old, Mary is reminded, remember whose son this is? Remember the destiny of this child? And he says that to them, and, and they are silent, and they ponder it in their heart. Just as Mary pondered it in her heart when the angel Gabriel came and announced uh, that she was to give birth to the Savior. So in that story, Luke is highlighting for us that Jesus was coming into some sort of understanding of himself as the Son of God, as the Son of the Heavenly Father, the Father whose house was the temple of God. The other thing that, that Luke highlights for us is Jesus' submission to his parents. It's remarkable. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The Son of God, in his Father's temple, left the temple and came and submitted to his family. Right? He is the one to whom, through whom all things were created, yet he leaves his father's throne and subjects himself to a life lived out as, as a man. You see how that works? That story? We're going to see this over and over, this pattern. Jesus is the Son of God. All things were created through him, but the way that he saves his people, the way that he is coming into the earth, is he is divesting, he is emptying himself. And this is the way our king brings salvation to us. That, I mean, I don't really like when Billy tries to prod us for amens, but that deserves an amen. All right, and then the, the second thing is the genealogy. Okay, this, this gets us right up to chapter 4. And I'll say just a few things here. One is that I don't want to get into the technicalities of it, but just the way that it's, it's written. In Matthew, the genealogy says Abraham, starts with Abraham, and it says he was the father of this, the father of this, the father of this. 
The way that Luke writes his genealogy is he begins with Joseph and then rewinds all the way back to Adam. And so the language that he uses is the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, instead of the father of, the father of, the father of. You see how this works? And so we get to the son of Adam at the end of the genealogy, the son of God. Son of Adam, which means mankind. Son of Adam, son of God. That's who Jesus is. Son of man, son of God. About his father's business in the temple, submissive to his parents. See these two aspects of God. Colossians 1, 15, Philippians 2. At every corner, we're learning that Jesus is the one, the king, but that he empties himself as his, the, the way that he brings salvation. So Jesus is the son of God. He's also the second Adam. Okay, so we, we come to the temptation of Jesus. You could say a lot of things about the parallels between the 40 years in the, 40 years in the wilderness that the Israelites experienced, Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, but you can also say that this is a rewind back further than that to the Garden of Eden, which is the, the, the last place that we see Satan coming to tempt mankind, to tempt Adam, to try and thwart the purposes of God. Okay? And so here at the beginning of his ministry, he has rewound through the genealogy all the way back to Adam to the point of creation, and the Spirit, it says, drives him into the wilderness. Now this, at the time of Adam, the first Adam, was Eden. Jesus comes not to a perfect garden, but to the wilderness that our sin has made the world into. And so here the the second Adam finds himself in the wilderness, the, the ruined Eden, and he faces the root of all of the ruin and destruction. He faces it head on as his first act. He comes up from the water. God says, you are my son in whom I am well pleased and sends him right to the source of all the problem. You see that? Into the wilderness, into this ruined wasteland to confront the enemy of mankind. So this is where we this is where we come into the temptation of Jesus. He full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And what he's doing, and I love that this genealogy is a rewind because Jesus is rewinding everything. He's going he's undoing it all. He's undoing all the ruin that has come down through the generations. He is rewinding it in his, own, uh, in his own life. He's going back through the wilderness, back through all, those, the, all the grief that the Israelites caused God's heart. He's, he's undoing all of that, all the way back to Eden and undoing all of it. He is our Savior. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry, naturally. <laughs> And the devil came to him and said, if you are the son of God. And this is where 
Satan tries to get us. This is where, uh, this is where he, he, this is right where he went with Eve. What do you think God wants for you? You know, if, if God loves you, why would he withhold something from you? So Satan always comes. He doesn't come to, uh, to get you to do something dirty. He comes to try and get you to do something that seems good. Okay? If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus, he undoes the failure of Adam, the first Adam. And he says, no. I am submitting to the will, the, the word of God, the command of God, more than I am listening to your lies and my own stomach. And he chooses to trust the word of God to bring his own starving body into trust, into alignment with the word of God. And in doing so, he defeats the enemy. And so Satan tempts him. At the end of this, Luke has an interesting phrase here in verse 13. He says, when the devil had ended every temptation. Now he mentions three. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And in this story of the temptation of Jesus, I, I, I believe that he is really facing every temptation. Satan ended every temptation. Whether that means that all temptations can be summed up by these three things, or whether there were more, I don't know. But there in the wilderness, after 40 days of fasting, Jesus faced every temptation and he was victorious because he trusted God. He relied on the word of God. And by the way, he did not have anything at his disposal that you and I don't have. He did not have any special privilege of body, of soul, of spirit that you and I don't have. He was fully human in this moment. He was 40 days hungry, as hungry as you and I would be after 40 days. And he chose to trust the word of God that you and I can know and understand. He chose to trust that in a way that you and I can. You see this? And he came to show us that, yes, someone who yields to the Father, someone who trusts the Lord, someone who knows who their Father is and trusts him with their whole heart can undo the works of the enemy, can, can persist in victory uh, over the temptation of the enemy. Amen? Uh, I, Dr. Kinlaw, uh, rest in peace, uh, he passed away this year, he, he loved to point out that, that when Jesus was facing this temptation, you know, he created the devil. <laughs> he also was there when he was cast out of heaven. And here he is subjecting himself to all the wiles of the enemy, stepping down into the wilderness, into the wasteland, facing that old, that ancient serpent, uh, not with the heavenly hosts, but in, in all the weakness of the body, in all of the weakness of mankind, 
There he is. He says, uh, I'm stripping away all of my glory, and I'm going to face you as a man. You see this? This is, this is our Savior. Okay, so he, he returns, and this is, where he, this is where he begins his ministry. He goes out and boom, right to the source, right to the, right to the root of all the problem, and, he, and, he, and he, he roots it out, and he undoes it. And then he begins to, as the second Adam, to now take dominion over the evil spirits, right? He begins to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The thing that the original Adam was supposed to do, and if you have that in, in the back of your mind, so much makes sense in these, in these opening stories of his ministry. Here he is. He has been victorious in the wilderness against Satan, and now he is going to begin to repair everything that the failure had undone. So a report went out, uh, let's see. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And he unrolls the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he says uh, this, which really is the theme of his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Favor, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. And this is um, the first instance that we have of, of what we would call a mic drop. <laughs> he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. And he said, I've fulfilled it today. I, just, I am fulfilling this right now. And there, there was astonishment. What? Now, what were they astonished at? Well, first of all, that this was Joseph's son. What, what are you talking about? You're son of Joseph. Mm-hmm. They didn't know. They didn't know who he was, right? We know whose son he is, having read the story up to this point. Um, so it says that he went down to Capernaum in verse 31, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Well, let me, let me finish up in Nazareth here. So that he's basically rejected, and he says, no prophet is welcome in his own town. And he says, listen, I'm, I'm telling you, do you remember back in the days of Elijah, in the days of Elisha, who was it that God was, was sending these, these prophets to? It was to the hearts. It didn't matter who, who, they, who they were by their blood lineage or, or what, who they thought they were. He was, look, he was sending the, the Spirit and the aid of God, the liberty, the recovering of sight to the blind, the healing. He was sending them to, first of all, they were Gentiles, but they were these obscure uh, people. And he says, remember, even in the Old Testament this was going on, that God was sending salvation to the hearts that knew they had no hope, to the hearts that were desperate, Okay, this is what, when we talk about the poor, when we're talking about the marginalized or whatever you want to say, uh, whatever word you want to use for it, we're not talking about necessarily the classes of, you know, the economic classes in those days. Jesus comes and there are some wealthy people who have come to the end of their self and he goes and he touches them. There are some very poor people 
economically, who have come to the end of themselves, and he touches them and he says, yes, that's, that's the heart I'm looking for. So what he is coming to look for is when he says uh, good news to the poor, it's the poor in spirit. It's, it's those, that have, those that have realized that they have nothing. They have nothing. Whether they have a lot of money or no money, okay, there are people of status. A loved one in their life dies, and they say, forget my status. This person has died, and I have no hope. And Jesus comes and says, you're right, and I'll heal them for you. You see this? So when he comes to p- proclaim the good news to the poor, it's not necessarily a, a, an economic thing or a social thing. Uh, it is he's coming to the, the hearts, Jew and Gentile, who are absolutely desperate for him. Okay? Absolutely desperate for him. And so he gives this little illustration. Obviously, it angers the people who, pri- who, who are stewards of the word, the leaders of the synagogue. What are you talking about? Why, why, would, you, why would you point that story out to us? Some people marvel, and, and they, they run him out of town at Nazareth. Now he comes to Capernaum, and it says, They were astonished, for his word possessed authority. His word possessed authority. What he did happened, or what he said happened. Now think of this in terms of Genesis 1. The word creates. Here he is. His word, they, they marveled because his word possessed authority. Authority over what? Everything. Especially the powers of darkness, these evil spirits. There's right in the synagogue. This is, uh, this is a guy who goes to church. Jesus comes in and the evil spirit says, Whoa, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. He came to his own. And his own received him not. There was a man who had an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus is going to church. And he's not welcome in the church because the the enemy knows, hey, as long as we can keep this church sort of just doing this thing, we're no threat to anyone. There's no threat to the powers of darkness, no threat to evil, no threat to sin. We can have a nice church. Jesus walks in, holiness in the flesh, righteousness in the flesh, and the evil spirits start to tremble. And I wonder... uh, if, if we need to, to, to you know, in, in, in our church, when we walk into the church, uh, do we want to suppress conviction? Do we want to suppress holiness? Keep it at bay? When, when, when someone comes to challenge us, when a word comes into our life and, and to, to really expose selfishness, do we want to say, what have you, no, no, you don't belong here. Or do we receive that word? Because it's Jesus, it is God, come to uh, deliver us. So he, he drives out, um, says, with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. There's something different about this guy. He goes and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. 
And it says the demons came out of many, saying, You are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them, and he would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. Now this, I like this. Uh, he tries to leave Capernaum, and they want to keep him there. <laughs> you have Nazareth failing because they drive him out. No, you're not welcome. In, you're not welcome here. We're so mad at you. And then Capernaum says, no, stay here. Don't go anywhere else. And he says, I have to go elsewhere. So there's a nice little sermon in there. Uh, rejecting Jesus, keeping Jesus for yourself. Neither are the right response uh, to Jesus in our lives. So he goes and, and, and he's confronting the powers of darkness. Now in chapter 5, I love this. And if you think of this as if you think of him as the second Adam, as the one who was there when the world was created, uh, you think of the verses in Genesis 1 where it talks about the, the things that swarm, all the fishes in the sea. Well, here he comes. He's the Lord of creation. And all these fishes in the lake, no big deal. He created those fish. He knows how they work. He knows how to get them to come into the net. <laughs> right? So he, he comes and he, he calls his disciples. And they said, oh, we've toiled all night. We've caught nothing. And he says, I've got this. Go let it out another time. Okay, all right. And they let down the nets and the nets are breaking. But here's, here's the interesting thing about this story. The catch, he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Verse 10. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. This was a a fishing business. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, teeming with fish, they left everything and followed him. What? You just you just hit the payload of blessing and they recognized that that was not that was not the purpose of of life. Yes, Jesus is able to to cause us to flourish, but that's not why he came. He didn't come to make us rich. He came to call us to himself. There's something about this man that's worth far more than all that blessing that he just miraculously put into our lives. Right? How many of us would would want to go count the fish and start to weigh them out, start to do a little math, price per pound? What's the market price? Right? They left everything and followed him. There was something about him, and here's, here's, here's what the key was. Simon Peter saw it, he saw the miracle, and he said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. This ever happened to you where God blesses you and it like makes you even more ashamed? <laughs> oh my gosh. How would you... Has God ever shamed you with blessing? It's almost like he wants to bless you just to show you that that's not even... that those things that you are crying out for aren't even anything. There's something far greater than that. 
There's something far greater than these things that we think we need. We're toiling all night. Finally, Jesus comes and miraculously provides. And then he says, come, follow me. Follow me. This stuff, I can do this all day. Come follow me. If you want to live your life that way, your fish is going to be your reward. Let's go catch men. Let's go participate in the saving purpose of God. Are you in with me on that, on that mission? And so that is, that's, what, that's what his disciples followed him for. Now, they struggled along the way, right? Um, well, surely he's going to substitute those fish with something. No, we're, we're going to die. We're going to lay our lives down. The reward, that's out there. But for now, we are laying our lives down, and we are emptying ourselves, right? We're leaving the throne. We're leaving the place of glory to, re- to find those hearts that are crying out, who are at the very end, whose physical and spiritual and emotional state has revealed to them their true desperation for God. And here we have a man with leprosy. Right after that, when he was in one of the cities, a man came full of leprosy, outcast, untouchable, unclean. And he fell on his face and begged him. Now, I don't think it was the leprosy that drew Jesus to this man. It was the man with leprosy on his face that Jesus came and touched. Jesus finds those people who... The man was desperate. He had leprosy. But he was desperate for something more. He saw Jesus and he fell on his face before Jesus and said, if you will, I don't deserve it, but I believe that you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I will be clean. I will be clean. Verse 16, we get one of Luke's many little uh, details. He highlights the fact that Jesus was constantly in prayer. He would draw to desolate places to pray. Right? We said to, to look out for all those places where, where Luke highlights prayer in Jesus' life. Um, and then in, this, in the last part of chapter 5, we have this great story where Jesus is, is teaching and uh, this man who's paralyzed comes in. And again, this is about desperation. It says when Jesus, they were climbing up to the top of the roof, making a hole in the roof, making this contraption to lower him down. By any means possible, we've got to get our friend around this guy. And it says when Jesus saw their faith, he said, what did he say? Man... Your sins are forgiven you. Adam, your sins are forgiven you. Okay, we've, we've driven out demons. We've healed physical ailments. I'm here to forgive the sins of mankind. 
Yes, all of the hurt and all of the, all of the destruction and all the sickness and illness that goes along with it, but I am here to forgive sin. Okay? And the Pharisees, they begin to, uh, they begin to take protest. Who can forgive sins? Right, I love what Jesus does here. And he goes, all right, guys, take your pick. <laughs> forgive sins or heal this guy? For Jesus, it's the same thing. Okay? He's coming to save. And that includes the body, and it includes the spirit and the soul and all the other parts of man. But he says, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier? <laughs> Which is easier? So they must have been saying, well, anyone can just, you know, you can say your sins are forgiven. And the Jews, they always want a sign. So he knows they want a sign. But he's saying, listen, this is a big deal to forgive sins. But if you need a sign, <laughs> it's not really what it's all about. But if you need a sign, here you go. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. (laughs) We saw, guys, sins get forgiven, And then he picked up his mat and walked. All right. Verse 31, he calls, well, he calls Levi, who's a tax collector, again, another marginalized. And see here, Levi, the the tax collector, he would have been wealthy, right? But he was outcast. Nobody likes a tax collector. Nobody likes a tax collector. Right? Does anyone like that guy that goes around campus in his little chariot and writes parking tickets? <laughs> no. <laughs> He's an outcast. <laughs> well, Jesus goes to that guy, and it pains me to say that Jesus goes to that guy and says, come follow me. And so I had to extend uh, grace and mercy to, to even those people. <sighs> um you know that guy, that little contraption. What is that thing? Who knows? So the Pharisees and scribes grumble and say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and Lex Park people and sinners, right? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician. And here's where we get uh, you know, a good way to think about the poor. Those who are well have no need of, of a physician, I have come, not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. If you think you've got something going for you, you don't need me. It's those people that know they have nothing going for them. That's who I'm here for. Okay. And so at this point, we, he begins to uh, encounter this opposition from the religious people. Okay. And the gist of it is this. They want to fit him into their understanding of the law. He wants to come and blow up their understanding of the law and say, you don't understand what the law is there for. 
you won't even permit me to bring life and healing and restoration on the Sabbath. What kind of weird interpretation of the law of God is that? That's the, that's the gist of the, the headbutting. No, Jesus, the law says this. I am the law, and the law is there to bring life. And if I'm going to bring life on the Sabbath, I'm going to bring life on the Sabbath, and everyone's going to go home happy, okay? No, okay? They always, they always want to uh, box him in to, make, to try and fit him into their narrow understanding of God. So he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Do you think I understand Sabbath? I worked six days and I rested on the seventh. And it was very good. (laughs) Now what was all that for? To bring life. To bring life. Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. The Son of Man, he says, is Lord of the Sabbath. So that's where he he gives this this illustration of the new wine and the old wineskins. I'm not going to fit in your conception of, your your idea of who God is. I'm not going to fit. It's going to burst. You need a new wineskin. Something new is happening here. Now, we're not discarding the law. We are fulfilling the law in a way that, that people have gotten it wrong the whole time. Okay? All right. And then we have, uh, he, he, he chooses his um, disciples. And again, he, he, went all, he went out all night in prayer. And it says he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples. Um, he points out that he calls one who would become a traitor. And we always got to remember that. Uh, Jesus subjected himself to a traitor, right? Jesus created, he, he subjected himself to earthly parents. He subjected himself to uh, the wilderness. He subjected himself to hunger. He subjected himself to the enemy that he had himself had cast out of heaven. And here he subjects himself to a scumbag who would betray him. to bring salvation, to redeem the world. And so the point is that Jesus did not, Luke makes it very clear, Jesus does not save us from his throne in heaven. Jesus saves us by coming and bearing all of the iniquities. He is the suffering servant. All those things in Isaiah, on him was the chastisement. He was so marred, he became so ugly with all this stuff. That is the way that God saves his people. Um, We'll just get through chapter 6. Chapter 6 is largely um, some very similar material to the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Basic teaching. It's an extended block of teaching. And the gist of it is, listen, God's coming to the desperate. Blessed are you who are poor, who are hungry, who weep, 
for you shall be filled. But if you're rich, full, and laughing, it's all going to come crashing down. This was all foretold in the very beginning with uh, Mary's song, right? The poor he has lifted up and the rich he has sent emptied away. So this movement of the rich coming down, the poor being raised up. And it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that Luke says, he said, and Jesus went out to a level place <laughs> and he preached. In Matthew, he goes up on the mountain to deliver the new law. And this is Sinai. <laughs> In Luke, it's the level place because he's bringing down the proud and he's lifting up the needy. So, yeah, we'll stop there. Um, yeah, I think that gives us some, some, good, uh, some good stuff to chew on this week. Uh, the, the outline, and I sent it out in an email, but the outline is really one through three, four through halfway through nine, and let's just go there real quick, halfway through nine, 951. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So from that point on, it's the journey toward Jerusalem. Okay, and so there's, there's, some, uh, there's, some clear, there's a clear division here between these, these early stories, chapters 4 through 9, and the journey to Jerusalem. And uh, read, you know, as you're reading, keep that in mind. Keep, is this, where are we in the big outline? Because when you, when you realize, all right, he's moving toward Jerusalem, it's getting closer and closer to his death. Uh, it, it makes you read stuff in a, in a different way. All right, well, here's what I want to say tonight, uh, just by way of application. And, you know, Jesus is not so interested. I think I've said this, but let me just make sure I underscore this. Um, that Jesus is not so interested in the, the physical, bringing relief to the physical state of someone as he is to coming to those people that their, their physical state and their desperation has revealed to them their need for a savior. That's the poor. A leper who realizes that there is no hope left and falls on his face. And you just see this in, in, in almost all these miracles. Look at the posture of the one who was healed. Right? It's not like Jesus is just going out and seeking. All right, where are all the lepers? Bring them all to me. Okay, where are all the... He, he, it's, it's very clear that he goes to those people who are desperately crying out for him. And so what this tells us is we, we should not first take this gospel and say, all right, how can we go um, heal the lepers? Our first instinct should be how poor am I? Do I recognize my deep need for a Savior? What's my posture toward Jesus? Because it's not leprosy that gets me the grace of God. It's desperation. Now, who understands desperation more than a leper? 
And who doesn't understand desperation more than a wealthy, fat person? So here's what we need to take away from this. Do we understand desperation? Before we haul off and try and figure out how to meet the needs of... Have we fallen on our face before Jesus and said, if you will, you can make me clean? Peter got it. Peter got it. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And that's what, that's where Jesus comes to preach the good news. He doesn't have anything to say to someone who doesn't really feel a desperate need for him. Someone who has the will of God figured out already. Someone who is well. But those people that understand that Jesus is their only hope, that's who he comes to. And so this will change our whole approach. It's not about, it's really not about your station in life. It's about how much you have been convinced of your need for God. Your desperation for Jesus. And so you're in one of two places. Jesus is coming to either tear you down or he's coming to lift you up. And the attitude of your heart will determine what Jesus comes to do. Scatter the proud in their their imaginations or fill the hungry with food. Okay? I want to be uh, I want to be hungry. I would rather be on that side of receiving from God. Right? I would rather be uh, a leper on his face than one of these people that is always getting on Jesus. Why are, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Well, the way I understand it is he comes to tear those people down and make it Make it level. So let me read again, um, just as sort of a closing prayer for us, uh, the Song of Mary. I don't ever want to move on from this opening section. If anything, as we read, we should keep coming back to it and drink more deeply and more deeply of these, uh, this opening of the gospel. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. We're going to see that happen all through this gospel. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones by himself 
removing himself of his own will from his throne. You see this? He did not just sit off and he came, he, he, he himself got off his throne. He came down to where we are so that he could help his servant Israel. Amen? Well, there's a little time here, and um, through these weeks, we want to, right, we, we are trying to just deepen ourselves in what it means to really be saved, what it means to really be filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, what it means to be poor, what it means that Jesus comes uh, to the poor, that he, that he favors those uh, who, are, who are desperate before him. And you guys can come up. And so as we're going to open the altar, or, or you can just pray where you are. Uh, but tonight, I want us to focus on, do, have I come to that place of desperation? Do I really need Jesus like a leper? <laughs> Like a dead man. Like a guy with a shriveled hand. In all of those miracles, that's you. <laughs> First of all, that's what you need to understand. And so have you become, has life, has God's work in your life brought you to the end of yourself? Do you understand your desperation? Because then God can touch you. Then, he, then everything will start to make sense then his, his purposes will begin uh, to be manifest in your life and they'll begin to, uh, then you can participate with him in going and finding those people and, and filling them with uh, the knowledge of God. Amen? So that's, that's the call tonight. Desperation. Absolute desperation and need for Jesus. Flat on your face. There's good news for you uh, when you are flat on your face. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you, you would come by your Holy Spirit, that you would convince us of our helpless estate. Lord, that if there's any proud thought or haughtiness in us, Lord, that you would bring it crashing down. And Lord, from that place of humility and brokenness, that you would fill us. Uh, with the sweet food of your body and blood. That you would fill us with the Holy Spirit. That you would reveal, Lord, our true desperation. Lord, that you would reveal, in spite of our American comfort living, uh, that you would reveal our desperate need for you. That you would reveal uh, the leprosy uh, that plagues us. And Lord, that you would uh, touch us and make us clean. We are desperate for you, Lord. And this is a work that only you can do. And we ask that you, uh, the second Adam, the one who got it right, the one who undid all of the failure, that you would come and undo uh, all of the, the mess that we've made. And help us to know you in deeper ways. Help us to meet you on that level place and receive your word and with meekness and humility. And help us to follow you. Help us to leave everything and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to come as an expression of your desperation,
the altar's open. And I'd love to pray that you'd be filled, uh, that the hungry among us would be filled. Amen.